0: This episode of Life Stories is brought to you by BuzzFeed Books. Hello, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Janet Mock. Her memoir is Redefining Realness. It's published by Atria, and I'm really thrilled to have you on the podcast today. Thank
1: you so much for having me.
0: I want to tackle a question from a different angle that that has come up in the way that other folks have talked about this. Other interviews seem to be fixated on the idea of being born a boy and growing up a boy. And let's reframe that as growing up with a self-image that is thoroughly contradicted and conflicted with what the world tells you that you are.
1: I think that's a perfect way of framing it. That's exactly, that's exactly it. And I think that oftentimes, when it's smaller media pieces, it's harder. Well, smaller but bigger, right? They give you a small real estate of time. They they don't communicate nuance. And I think that it, it's one of the most difficult things to soundbite, which is identity, which is something that I, you know, struggle through in, in the entire course of my childhood and adolescence and girlhood and path to womanhood. And so I think that the way that you frame it is correct. You know, ever since I was a child, I was fighting the people, mostly the people that I loved against their ideas of who I should be or whom they expected me to be based on what they learned in the world, especially about gender expectations. And so trying to explain that to people who want to soundbite my experience in order to entice readers or our viewers has been a huge battle.
0: And you talk a little bit in the memoir about writing Redefining Realness and the way that it contrasts against the trans narratives that have come down over the years i'm kind of curious because i i know that your professional background is as a re- reporter for people magazine dealing with like celebrity stories so on that front you're very familiar with the idea that you know that it is essentially a genre that there are conventional celebrity narratives and what you're saying and, and what you, you're finding and, and sharing is that there are also conventions to the trans narrative but that your story doesn't necessarily fit into the conventions that have been handed down to us.
1: Yeah, I think that those those stories definitely helped educate America to a certain aspect of it, which is the quote-unquote transition story. And I think that for me, my only – I think when you read the book, my only struggle is not just – my gender. <laughs> it is one of the biggest themes in it, but it's, it's its bigger than that. It's, you know, it's poverty, it's systemic oppressions, it's criminalization and drug addiction and all of these different things. It's this child growing up in an environment that is super loving but ill-equipped. And I think that for me, it's very reductive to just say that it's a transgender memoir, but I think that that's the most enticing attractive thing for many people listening to me. And so I think for me, it's centering it around like trying to mess up that single identity lens focus a little bit and kind of say that, how do we talk about someone in all of their facets and how do we explain that? And also for me, it was also challenging the genre, which has been kind of apolitical, For a very long time, when our identities are something that are are so politically minded, meaning that who we are has to literally be petitioned to governments to be recognized. And, you know, we continue to deal with so many experiences of exile and erasure. I wanted to make sure that I used my personal experiences in this book as a young trans woman and bring in a contextualized scope larger than just me. So how, how does this affect trans people in general? And what does it look like in, I guess, the macro? So it's like this big idea through a very emotional experience of my own life story.
0: There's a point in which you cite a Baldwin quote about identity. And I'm going to get the quote wrong, but the gist of it is that identity is a cloak that we wear lightly over ourselves or, or should wear lightly over ourselves. And you talk in your story to the fluidity of identity and that it's okay to be in flux about our about our identities
1: yeah and I think that's the the, the nuance right like I think I opened my first chapter in that after the introduction and I that certainty and the, the murkiness and like this sense of uncertainty like that that's just something I, I didn't know growing up the first thing I learned about myself was that you are a boy and you need to act like this right? And it was obviously people were exerting that onto me because of the way that I, I did not quote unquote act like a boy. For me, it was like challenging all of those notions from the people that I loved and trying to still seek out my own self. And what is self? You know, and I think that's something philosophers are talking about for so long, you know, selfhood, what is self? And so for me, it's like, I love words so much, but at the same time, they are limiting because I think there is an essence of us that is hard to explain, but that's the challenge as a writer is trying to explain something that's so so nuanced
0: you chose to write this book in part because when the Marie Claire story came out three years ago and as as other people have pointed out introduced you to the world (laughs) at the very beginning of redefining realness you talk about how okay that may be true but the girl in that article as empathetically as that article may have been produced by the journalist and the folks at Marie Claire putting it together that representation didn't fully resonate with you. And this is an attempt to present a more authentic version of yourself.
1: That also goes back to, to my own media background. I knew that if I would have come out in all of my layers of identity and experience then it would have been soundbited differently. It would have been different than just, I was born a boy or I was a boy, whatever the headline was. It would have been Janet Mock, her confessional of being transgender and a teenage sex worker and being grown up in this dysfunctional family. The focus would have been so... Much more muddied and difficult for people to even then care about me. It would have been super sensationalized. My credibility as a person would have been checked because we know that there's so much stigma in all of these identities and these experiences that I've had. And I think that also for me, that was an interesting process stepping forward in that way. And it was someone that I trusted, but at the same time, she didn't work at the magazine. She was a freelance writer. We know freelance writers don't have that much agency in saying what they want the story to be. It was supposed to be a third person profile, not written in. I in first person. And so we had all these little little stumbling blocks along the way, and we had no control over the titles, the decks, and all of this kind of stuff. And it, it, was, it was a difficult thing because I, at the same time, I'm grateful for it because I know that it gave a lot of young women a sense of representation for me to take up space in a major women's magazine is important and that's vital and stories are vital. But at the same time it, it felt false for me because it wasn't in my words and it, it wasn't completely in my perspective and it was still filtered through someone else's gaze and experience.
0: Circling back to some of the childhood experiences that you've had with your family and and your school gender policing you. You know, one of the the most heartbreaking aspects of this story is when you talk about how, like, basically the one person who validated your identity as a girl, as a child, was your abuser. But the you know the only person who's willing to treat you as a girl is exploiting you.
1: It was such a difficult experience for me to write about. For me for so long, and it's so interesting in this light of the Dylan Farrow, as someone who has survived something like that, someone who was a victim of sexual abuse, especially as a child. When children don't have voices and you're told that, no, what you're feeling is wrong and you should keep that secret and you deal with that and you're challenging yourself, like, did I really remember that correctly? Like, did that really happen? Because so many people around you have taught you to be silent about the abuse that you went through. But that's the powerful thing about pedophiles, about abusers, about those who target young children is that they know how to woo you They know exactly what it is that you need, and they know how to look at an isolated child and to say that this child's parents aren't really around, that what can I do? Like, I know this child won't say anything, and if they do say anything, no one will believe them. Specifically in my instance, being that it was another minor and someone that lived in our home. Was added layers of confusion, confusion and con- conflation. My body with um, what is love, what is sex, what is childhood, what is safety, what is stability, and all of these things. I, I, it took me years and years and years to unpack.
0: You underline in the telling of the story, and I want to make sure that we underline for listeners that this is not a case where, as as some people have speculated, the abuse created the identity. The identity was there, even if it was. Formative and not fully articulated and and even if your abuser didn't fully recognize the your identity he recognized the opportunity. Yeah,
1: that's such a great point to bring up. And it's something my brother conflated. You know, I write about it and he was just like, I always thought that maybe that was a reason why you quote unquote turned, you know? And that was one of the reasons why I probably didn't want to write about it because i would learned through media and pop culture and all these different things that there's some kind of deviance in my experience as a trans woman. And therefore, something must have gone wrong in order for me to be who I am. And it, it's so interesting having to unlearn that and to say that, no, it was because I was a feminine child that I was targeted. It was because my femininity isolated me that then it made it easier for me to be targeted. I don't need to find reason as to why I am who I am. I just am.
0: You talk about, in adolescence, beginning to take on what you describe as the responsibility of self-definition, taking charge of your own life. And to circle back to something that you alluded to in an earlier answer about how the sex work was something that didn't come out in the first version of your life story. You know, this idea that as you're sort of coming into your identity, one of the only safe spaces in which you could express yourself as who you knew yourself to be with other women who knew themselves to be that way as well was in a sex work environment, because that's where these women had been marginalized to.
1: It was one of the only spaces that trans women occupied. You know, I say unapologetically a lot, in the book, unapologetically, because it was this, I keep on saying that it's this underground railroad of resources that enabled all of us to find our own sense of freedom. I think the bitiness of it is very difficult to convey all of that complexity there. You know, I learned so much from these women about resilience and building your own system of support in a world that tells you that you shouldn't exist and that if you do exist, you need to go into hiding and not tell anyone about your past or anything. And I think about when you discuss sex work, you can't not discuss it without talking about poverty and criminalization and joblessness and lack of sensitive trans-inclusive health care and the high medical costs that come with me to find the gender-affirming treatments that you need as a young person. And being 16 and having to climb that summit, these women became a refuge for me. And they, they taught me so much about what greatness looks like. I think I always turn to a lot of Toni Morrison's books because the way that she wrote about sex workers in many of her books have really been unapologetic. They're full portraits of these women who owned their own homes and sat in communities and everyone knew exactly who they were and no one victimized or talked down to them. They had a role in that community. And my th- my thing was to bring humanity to these women that taught me so much. I think that these good and bad situations are not mutually exclusive, right? There's conflation there. and There's a lot of muddiness. And just as much as I learned power, right, but I also learned blurred lines coming in, in, in the sense of sex and my boundaries with my body and disassociation with my body and the worth of my looks and my body and objectification and all of these different muddy things that I think that if I was to erase that from my narrative, it would be untrue because it, it wouldn't have been the full story.
0: In that matrix of conditions going on, you know, you were emotionally isolated, physically abused as a child, trained to please men, at that point still detached emotionally from your own body as the location as a representation of yourself and growing up in economic powerlessness that i mean it sounds overly deterministic but this was pretty much where the highway was going
1: and it's no coincidence that i wasn't the only one out there i think that as you as you properly framed it in your first question about sex work it's where we've pushed we further marginalize these women from being in the center, from being part of our society, as a valuable part of our society. And that's why, for me, even the book cover was important that I'm up in the city of my choice, in my home of my dreams, in the daytime, being visible in my own power and my body in in a book that's of my own words. And so I, I think about the grooming of that. I was groomed to do that. It would have been surprising if I didn't, if I would not have been able to do that. And many women have chosen not to, and they've not done it. And that is an amazing feat. But for me in the community that I grew up in, that's where all the women were, almost all of them, And there were select few who didn't and they still were there out there hanging out (laughs) with the girls because it was a sense of community there and a sense of of refuge and strength and just so much there
0: right and you did that for quite a long time before you started working you were just because these were women who could understand your situation
1: yeah and just to share space with people who understand you without having to explain anything you know i don't have to explain anything to trans women trans women know exactly what's going on and I think that that's a part of the, the frustration with everything that's been going on in the media we alluded to a little earlier it is that that sense of going into a lion's den and knowing that there's no way you're going to come out of this victorious in a sense because no one wants to listen to who you are they want to tell you who you who you are. <laughs> and so self-definition is something that I continue to talk about. I continue to quote Audrey Lord there because if we don't define ourselves for ourselves, we'll be crushed up into other people's fantasies of us and eaten alive. That's one of the quotes I use in the book because it, it's, it's been the biggest battle of my life. And I think gaining more and more visibility and voice also leads to greater and greater chances of people trying to strip that away from me and telling
0: me who I am. You're going through the lion's den in some very visible ways right now, Mm -hmm. but it's occurring not as an isolated event anymore. You know, I think of recent events like the Katie Couric interview or the Grantland story about Dr. V and the way that trans people and other people who can recognize what is going on in the way that the media is handling this is saying, you know, enough is enough drawing the line and pushing back against these kinds of representations. It feels like there's kind of a turning point in trans awareness.
1: I think there is a turning point. I I think it can't, it goes back to marginalization. When marginalized people gain voice and center their own experiences, things begin changing. And we see this in all kinds of grassroots movements. Now we have access to the internet and YouTube and Twitter. And when something is wrong in mainstream media, it's not the only media outlet anymore. We can talk back. You don't have to invite us on your shows or write about us, but we're not going to be quiet. And that was the beautiful thing about every single one of those those pieces was the fact, all of those media portraits from Grant Land and Katie Couric to the interview that I just went through on CNN is the fact that we talked back and there is justified anger there because for so long, and I, I read about this in the book from 1952, we've been covered in media. In American media, and Christine Jorgensen got off of that plane and was bombarded by journalists who were all there with their cameras, mostly tabloid journalists, who were sensationalizing her life. And she never explained her life in that way, but the media soundbites that are there is how her, her portrait began to be told, and then everyone else had to fit that same template, even me, someone who challenged that portrait throughout my book. I know, you know, and we know media, most times they don't read the book. And that's been apparent in the interview that I went through compared to the one that I did with Melissa Harris Perry, who read the book and who came to it with such kindness and warmth and generosity. Never asking me about transition, but asking me about the power of being able to write your story as a young trans woman, as a young poor trans woman of color. What does that look like to be able to come to that summit to say, I'm going to write my story down and tell it and sell it to a major publisher and make that summit and then dare to change the genre in some way or shift it a little bit and elevate it to a grander place. I forgot what your question was. I started going on a tangent, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that voice, the voice, the talking back, viewers talking back, trans people talking back, our allies talking back, those who actually have an elevated idea on these issues and a deeper sensitivity and care for these issues talking back
0: talking back in, in a very nuanced and particular way, you know, there's something you write about towards the end of the book where, you know, while we're critiquing the idea of, imagine me doing the, the finger quotes thing here, passing, this idea that success for you would be being able to pass yourself off as a, again, scare quotes, natural woman, when that would entail Being a black woman in America, which.
1: Yeah, how much privilege am I really taking on? (laughs) You know, I don't think there's any kind of safety in our culture or voice for women of color. In general, especially Black women in America, and I think that that's what was so interesting about the optics of everything with that CNN interview was that it was a, an attack on a, a, a woman of color, and then you're adding on the layer of transness onto it, and then also youth. And it's interesting this idea of passing, and I always say that for me, passing it's this incorrect verb or concept because. I'm not actively engaging in this and my identity and how people perceive me is not my responsibility. My, well, specifically the the way that people perceive me is not my responsibility or what assumptions they make about me. I walk in the world as a woman because I am a woman. And people should take me as that. I'm not passing as anything that I'm not. I'm, I'm just being myself. For me, the concept, I understand that the access that it gives me, right? Because I don't have to carry the burden of people always checking my transness at the door and then further objectifying me on top of the way that I'm objectified as, you know, as a Black woman in this world. But I do think about trans women who don't have that same access that I have because of the way that I look. And I think my number one thing is that to ensure that our safety and our our safety is not based on the way that we look, and we should all have that access to be. And also, it's under this assumption that's a there's a way that trans women look, that there's some kind of universal way or look that there is. And it's so interesting because I think about someone like Sojourner Truth. She had to bear her breast to say, ain't I a woman? And that, as Bell Hooks properly frames in her first book, is the the queerness of Black womanhood, having always been outside of the ideals of what we say womanhood is, which usually is not Black womanhood and not trans womanhood. And so when you're at the intersections of both of those, what does your experience really look like?
0: And even your story is more complex than that, because To identify you as a black woman is to elide over another huge portion of your heritage, which is your native Hawaiian background. I bring that up specifically because while we talked about the problematic environment of of the sex work culture, growing up in Hawaii in the 1980s also provided you with a more positive example of what gender non-normativity could be.
1: Yeah, it, it, it was, it was so powerful growing up in an environment that was open, right? Like there, even though it's been westernized and it's America now, <laughs> it still had a space outside of the binary. And I think about all of these, a lot of Polynesian cultures that have that space. And I think about how my life would have been so different if I stayed in Dallas, Texas with my father throughout my teenage years. I, it, I may not have been here. You know, and I think about how Hawaii was so fundamental to my being, to my being able to thrive, because I had an experience where my best friend was another trans girl, and we had our teenage years together, discovering our girlhood together, and she was a bit ahead of me in her journey, and that was no, there was no happy accident. That was such a blessing to have that self-reflection in my best friend, and I think that's why I may have a slightly different experience, because... Though I had heard, I was fed a media portrait of myself, right, through all of these things that I I write about in the introduction of the book, um, from The Crying Game and, you know, Law and Order and all, and Ace Vendura, (laughs) Parent Detective, all the things that everyone else learns about trans people. I also had another portrait in Hawaii of real-life lived experiences of trans women, and they were varied. I knew sex workers. I knew students. I knew outreach workers. I knew lawyers and social workers. And so I had a very different experience of what a trans woman's life could be like and that did offer me a lot of
0: possibility growing up and that kind of crucible really seems like a fundamental influence in the way that you know when the book is called redefining realness okay what is the realness that we're redefining and you talk about this idea that realness and this idea of heteronormativity that somebody looks real but what you're hoping to do is say well no realness doesn't Necessarily equal heteronormativity, that there are ways to be real without being real in the patriarchal isn't the right word I'm looking for here. The, the overarching sort of, you know what I, I'm getting I do, at? I do, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> the, the overwhelming dominant cu- the yes. dominant culture yes. that, that we can, mm-hmm. that we don't have to play into that sort of mm-hmm. dominant paradigm. That's the word I'm looking for.
1: <laughs> you got it. You got it. <laughs> I think you know it was so. It was so important for me to have a word that was rooted in my community, knowing that trans women, specifically in the ball scene of New York City, which was very much shown in Paris' Burning, which probably was one of the biggest portraits that anyone saw of young trans women of color living their lives and trying to dream of themselves. And Octavia St. Laurent and Venus Extravaganza and Corian Dory, these women who were so visible and. And, you know, that concept of realness, even within that portrait, told through a white woman's gaze, right? A white queer woman made that documentary. And I think that was the first time anyone heard of the concept of realness on a, on a major scale. And for me, it was, it was so important to grab that term because it's such a strong one, but telling us we can still keep this term, but we can redefine it for ourselves, meaning that it doesn't have to only also be about how we look. It can also be about how we tell our stories and how we stand in our truth and declare our identities and reframe what authenticity is. Fighting back against people who tell us we can't have a space for the erotic in our politics because that wouldn't look up to um, respectability politics. And we can't really talk about the struggles we go through that lead us to sex work. And we can't talk about all of these different facets of our identity, which which need to be talked about in order to free us all. And so for me, yeah, I, I, I... I I don't want it to, you know, realness to only be this idea of what's natural and what's illegitimate, and that there's no such thing as, quote unquote, a (laughs) natural anything. We're all just ourselves, and that should be as natural as it is to us, just as our gender should be as unique as we are.
0: And you've mentioned in this conversation alone, Toni Morrison and Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks as influences on you. And I'm wondering if there were other memoir writers in particular that presented themselves as models of how you wanted to try and articulate your story.
1: I think the number one for me would be Maya Angelou's I knew, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. All the silence that she went through. She silenced herself after she was abused. And I think about how though she went through a period of muteness, right, that's that's also so symbolic and so resonant with my experience of having to be quiet about the, the trauma in my life about the pain my parents went through themselves as people and then how that pain was enacted onto my life and my siblings lives the pain that i went through in the conflict with my identity and my gender and also just the pain that's going on right now with this book being not framed in the right way like this is a, a landmark book you know and it seems so conceited <laughs> to say that but i I know, I, I saw the messages from young women. You know, there's this one woman who wrote to me and she said, um, I'm sitting in bed with your book at five in the morning after having a John just leaving my apartment and feeling so shitty about myself and having blamed myself for putting myself in the situation where I have to go into doing this kind of work that I don't want to be doing. And that you gave me reflection and truth and understanding. And I think about, it's still very surreal to me that my, my memoir could be as impactful on some young woman's life as Maya Angelou's book was for me. And as, you know, Zora Noe Hurston's book is for me, Um, On Their Eyes Were Watching God. And, you know, Alice Walker's The Color Purple was for me. And all of them felt so true to me. And I think Maya Angelou was the most powerful because I think it was a true story. And there's something about not making these things up, even though I know it still comes from a human experience, right? Even your creativity that you then tell fiction in. But there's something about Maya standing in her truth and really telling her stories. And she continued to do that with many other books. And seeing women who reflected my image of self was also very important too.
0: You were a writer and a journalist before you started working on this book. And I assume that you're going to be continuing to write. What is the sort of framework that your your writing is 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 going to continue down.
1: That's so interesting. <laughs> Everyone keeps you're basically kindly asking like what what's your next what's book? Your, your next book. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think that's something that I've been sitting so so much in, and I think that's where I get my I do get inspiration from Maya Angelou's career, right? Because she's she's been able to editorialize her life in a sense, right? Like breaking it up into periods, into themes, and writing true stories about it. And I think the next one. Would have to would have to be about my young womanhood because redefining realness is very much about my girlhood, about journeying towards womanhood. It's not so much about living my life like what did my twenties look like, you know? What did being from eighteen to. 28 when i decided or 27 look like when i decided to step forward and what were those years of anonymity like those years in which i was quote-unquote living stealth right when many people in my life didn't know that i was trans but i was also navigating these spaces as a young woman of color in new york city working in corporate america and all of these other bigger challenges and i think that one would deal that one of the biggest themes would be about the social experience of beauty and looks and how though people perceive me to be beautiful, I didn't see myself in that way because that's not how I learned to grow up in the world. I didn't learn to grow up that I was attractive. You know, I was always battling my body and disassociating with it. And so I think that my next book would probably be a memoir, but it would be a bigger commentary too on that concept of perception and navigating the world, living authentically, but being told that you need to open up and tell people everything about you.
0: And let's say, based on your recent media experiences, that I am a visibly heteronormative white cis male presented with the opportunity to talk with you about your book and your story. What would be some of the things that I could do or not do to make that interview or that conversation a positive experience rather than a negative one?
1: I think the number one thing is recognizing the other person's humanity. I think with trans stories, people just see them as subjects, and when you see someone as a subject, therefore they look like an object to you, and you feel as if they're can they open to you being able to just throw whatever you want at them and see what sticks. And I see this being done to trans kids, too, right now, where they're being asked about their genitals, and this is a sexualization of children. If you really look at it, if you're asking a a seven-year-old about what's in their pants... It's just this this dehumanizing thing. And I think anything with great conversations always sparks in a genuine interest to recognize and know the other person's story and therefore recognizing and understanding and celebrating their humanity, knowing that this isn't some subject for you, but this is someone that you're trying to engage in a conversation with. And I think for me, that's the fundamental thing. We're also talking about allyship in a sense too, right? Which has become an identity which to me should be an active process of learning and growing and action. And so if a community is telling you that something is, that you did something wrong, your job is not to defend yourself. Your job is to listen. And we have this term in social justice groups, you step up and you step back. So you already stepped up by doing the media portrait. And now you need to step back and listen. Because obviously people were hurt by these various portraits and your job as a ally or as someone who wants to further the conversation is, is to listen. And it's, that's very much a part of, I think, any good interviewer, any journalist, any media person is listening is a big part of it and knowing that there's uncomfortability there if certain things are said.
0: Well, I certainly hope that you run into more people like that as you continue, like thank you, as you continue your media journey. I have been talking with Janet Mock about Redefining Realness, her memoir from Atria Books. You have been listening to Life Stories, and if you're subscribed to us on iTunes, thank you for that. If you're not subscribed on iTunes, it's very easy to do, and either way, I hope that you might take a moment to rate and review the podcast in the iTunes store. It makes it that much easier for other people to find it as well, and I hope that you will join us again for another episode soon. Thank you for listening.
1: Take care.